0: Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You are listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Again, just a reminder: as our kids are dismissed every week, to be praying for them and those that are ministering to them. And uh, this is a, a, a PSA. We, we actually have quite, uh, several new dads in our uh, in our church in this last year and. Uh, uh, children are being born, which is a great way to grow a church. Next Monday, or next Sunday, do you know what next Sunday is? Okay, many of you know. Uh, so this is a good reminder, if you are a, especially a new dad, that it is your job to help your baby celebrate Mother's Day, okay? This is from experience that I'm sharing this, so don't forget next, uh, Mother's Day next month. Um, we do have some things coming up uh, as a church family. Caleb mentioned our membership orientation next week, or yeah, two weeks from now. And then we're looking toward, if you are with us last year during COVID, kind of the height of COVID, uh, we met outside, and it allowed us a lot more freedom and safety. And so we're, we're planning to do that again this summer. We may even do it earlier than we did last summer, uh, potentially in June. And so we're excited. Uh, we're blessed to have that property across the street uh, to do that. And so lots of things uh, that are still in flux in this season that we're in, but we're so grateful for how the Lord has continued to to bring us together as a church, to grow us as a church, many new folks in this last year, uh, and to continue to sustain us. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open up to, to Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at the first uh, we're look at verses 3 through 7, really 3 through 8 there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the pews in front of you, and I put a little cheat code uh, if you don't know where Titus is, because it's a, book, a quick book to, to miss, uh, easy book to miss. It's in page 1030. If you're with us online, we're grateful that you've continued to engage in that way as well as we know about 30 or 40 folks in our church family still are, are engaging with us on a weekly basis. Um, if, if you don't remember anything else today uh, from my message, I, I hope that God's word as we read it together uh, will be imprinted in your hearts. And this would be something that you even come back to this week. And so Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 says this, At one time we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Wow. Last week we looked at what a biblical picture of justice looks like and how justice is rooted in the character of God. And contrary to the you-do-you, truth-is-relative ideology of our culture, we believe that God has revealed to us what truth really is and what righteousness really looks like. And his name is Jesus. It's his righteousness that allows us to see our own sin clearly. And it's his justice that was on display on the cross paying paying both our sin and restoring our relationship to the one who made us. And so who God is and what he's done is the central theme of what we've been talking about in recent weeks as we've looked at what the kingdom of God means and the implications of the kingdom of God. So if you're just joining us, the most prominent theme in Jesus' ministry from all four Gospels is the kingdom of God. He told us to pray it. Pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. And as he went about preaching and teaching, he preached the good news of the kingdom. So with this understanding, we've talked about what the implications of the kingdom are for us. How does the kingdom affect our identity, our marital status, whether you're single or married, our sexuality, our work, our politics? And last week we looked at justice from a distinct kingdom perspective. The last line of the passage that we just read shows us that we have been made right by God. That's what justified means. And so with this in mind, we are then commissioned to live out that righteousness in a very broken and confused world. And so verse 8 continues on with that thought. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So out of the justification of Jesus, we are are then called to live differently. We are both, we could put it this way, saved from something, our sin, And saved to something. We're saved to be a part of the kingdom of God. So we might then ask, well, what then? Like when we've received this righteousness from God, what then? Titus 3.8 says, I want you to stress these things. In other words, talk about them. Make them the most important aspect of your lives. What Christ has done and then out of that to do good. Now, the order is very important. And I've had this discussion with so many folks over the years. The good things we do are because of a God who justified us. We don't do the good things so that he will justify us. He he does that regardless of our goodness or our sin. And so this is the the two-pronged aspect of justice that we talked about last week. This idea that Jesus pays the penalty for our sin which is justice being done, but then he restores us as humans. And this morning, I want us to get specific, more specific than we got last week when we talked about justice. And I want us to consider how our kingdom citizenship, kingdom citizenship shapes how we deal with issues of injustice in our society. And so this morning, I picked two from culture of all of the things that we could talk about. And we want to consider these issues, and they're prominent issues in our culture, and we want to look at them from a kingdom perspective. Now, these issues are politicized big time, and so even talking about them in church, sometimes pastors choose to avoid it. I'd rather not talk about it and take the chance of offending somebody. But what we want to be able to do as a church family is we want to be able to wade into the tough issues. Because if we as a church say, well, we're just going to talk about grace and mercy and love, and we don't talk about how those things are applied, then those, we are missing it as a church. And then we wonder why the young people walk away from their faith. Well, it's never connected with the reality of the world. So we're going to look at two, I'm prepping you, okay, two hot button topics in our culture that are absolutely part Of God's heart, he has something to say about these things, and we have a responsibility to place. So I'm going to pray that uh, we only remember God's words this morning, but that he would lead us into these things. And so, Lord, we ask this morning, as we consider your righteousness and your justice, that we would see it clearly. Not from my words or my perspective, but from your word, Lord. And so as we look at these big issues in a short amount of time, would you stir us up, Lord God, Would you prompt us to do good based on the righteousness that you've given us in your son? We thank you for your goodness toward us. May we extend it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so unless you choose to live in a cave up in a mountain, your Christian faith is worked out around people in society and culture and in a nation, at your workplace, at your school, with your families. You get it, right? And whether 2,000 years ago in Rome or today in America, followers of Jesus have always had to consider how to put feet to their faith. How does the righteousness and justice of God affect the way that I live and the good that I'm called to do? One of my favorite verses, and we talk about this in our membership orientation, is from Hebrews chapter 10. It says this, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So you can see, even in the first century church, people are like, yeah, should we really meet? I'll see him around, I'm sure. And so there's this challenge to continue to gather together. And this is one of the main reasons we're meeting this morning. The last thing we want is Sunday morning to be some sort of religious obligation. What we want it to be is we want it to be an every week family reunion where we spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Now, if you're like a, from a ranch or a horse person, you, you probably think spur, like kick that horse in the, you know what, get it, get it moving. Um, really, this is not necessarily a kick, but an encouragement, right? Come on, let's do this. We did this last year around this time. We were feeding people every Tuesday in our neighborhood. Come on, people are in need, let's go. So many of you engage with that. So this is what it means to be a part of a church. that so we're. Come on, let's engage, let's live out this faith that we have believed in. So again, whether it's providing for those in need, providing safe places for at-risk youth, which we do on Wednesday nights with our youth ministry, fighting for racial justice, whatever it would be, the story of the Christian faith is the story of followers of Christ seeking to live out the ways of the kingdom in the here and now. Last year around this time, uh, I was curious as the pandemic ha- was in full, full swing to read a little bit about how the people of God have engaged with, the, of, uh, engaged with the culture in the midst of a pandemic. Because you guys know this, right? The world has had pandemics. Over and over and over and over again since the history of the world. So for thousands of years, pandemics have been a reality of this broken world that we live in. How have Christians historically engaged with that? I look back at one of the very first pandemics in the Roman Empire. And as thousands of people were dying, there was no vaccines. People weren't thinking about masks, none of that stuff. The the leaders of the Roman Empire were like, what do we do to get this thing to end? And so they went to their gods They went to their superstitions and they said, hey, everybody needs to go and they need to worship at this temple so that maybe the gods will have mercy on us. And the Christians said, we can't do that. We know there's only one God. And what the Christians did do is they waded into the culture and they began to take care of those that were suffering and dying, where so many others were keeping far away out of superstition and out of fear. Christians engaged Well, the Roman leader at that time said, wait, you're not going to worship at the temple to try and end this pandemic? And so he made a decree to persecute those Christians that wouldn't do what he had said to do. And the people didn't obey that edict because what they saw was they saw Christians that were living out their faith, that were sacrificing themselves for the good of their neighbor. And so it backfired on that Roman emperor. So this is a history of Christianity, engaging, putting feet to their faith. And, and we're not perfect, and Christians are still prone to idolatry. And, and this, too, is seen both in our history and in our current day. Christians sometimes behave in very un like ways. And honestly, this is why I don't have a Christian fish on the back of my car. Like, I don't want anybody to have an excuse to hate Jesus or Christians because I accidentally cut them off trying to get home on the 405. <laughs> so we, we are imperfect, but that's not an excuse not to pursue the goodness of God in our culture and to be a light in the darkness. And when the church is at its best living out the values of the kingdom, then God is made known and Christ is made much of. So as we talked about biblical justice last week, I thought I'd bring two relevant cultural issues to the table that we could examine from a kingdom perspective. And as we think about these things, I want us to humbly and prayerfully ask God to show us how we're to live out our faith in a way that is in line with the restorative justice of God. And as I mentioned earlier, these are not the only issues that we're to engage with, but I think these are two that are hot-button topics They've been politicized, and we ought to look at them new, for some of us, through a biblical and a kingdom lens. So let's talk about the first one. The first issue that I want us to consider today is the issue of abortion. The year I was born, 1.2 million of my generation were not. 1.2 million babies were aborted killed in the womb the same year I was born in 1979, 1.2 million. I often wonder what artists, scientists, leaders, friends were never given a chance at life. Now, abortion rates have dropped in recent years, but it's still by far the leading cause of death. Nearly three times the amount of people that died of COVID last year were killed in the womb, just under 900,000 babies each year in our country. This has been politicized, and it makes our heart race, and it causes angst, but we ought to, as Christians, consider how our citizenship, our Christian citizenship, informs our view of abortion. We're not to start with the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. We're going to start with God's word. And we know, as we've talked about in this series, that unlike anything else in all of creation, people are special to God. Genesis 127 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. Of all of creation, we are unique in that we are image-bearers of God. So if we are made in the image of God, then God takes the next step in Genesis 9:6, and he says, murder is wrong. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For the, in the image of God has God made mankind. The sixth commandment explicitly talks to this. You shall not murder. And Jesus reiterated this command and calls murder for what it is, evil. He says, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder." Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So there's a very clear biblical understanding that murdering people is wrong and almost everybody in society, Christian or not, would agree with that. But then the next question. So if murder is wrong, or murdering people is wrong, are babies in the womb people? What does the Bible say about this? Well, even in ancient times of the Bible, it was clearly understood that Babies in the womb were, in fact, people. Here, very quickly, are some verse references. Um, People have personal attributes. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In Luke 144, we see uh, as Mary and Elizabeth connect together, At the sound of your greeting reach my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So, The Bible describes babies with personal attributes, and they're described by personal pronouns. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, appointed you as a prophet to the nation. So God sees the babies in the womb as people. The Bible calls babies in the womb as children. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting the baby, or the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, with this understanding, the Bible also gives the same punishment for those that would kill a baby, as those that would kill in the womb, as those who would kill an adult. Uh, probably the strongest argument against uh, abortion from Scripture is the fact that the same punishment is applicable. You see it in Exodus chapter twenty-one that anybody who kills or injures an unborn child has the same penalty as that of an adult. We see in Scripture that children in the womb are called by God before birth. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. So the unborn are personally known and intimately described by God and He would, the way he would know any other person. Describing a child in the womb, the psalmist David says, My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This is just a brief survey of what we see in Scripture of the personhood of babies in the womb. and Scripture undeniably acknowledges the value of humanity from conception and their worth as unique image bearers from that moment through to death in old age. And here's the thing, the Bible is not at odds with science on this debate. Contrary to how our politicians would frame this issue. Dr. Maureen Condick, a professor of neurobiology at the University of Utah states, embryos are not merely collections of human cells, but living creatures distinct from a group of cells. Embryos are capable of growing, maturing, maintaining a physiologic balance between various organ systems, adapting to changing circumstances and repairing injury. Mere groups of human cells do nothing like this under any circumstances. So this isn't a minority opinion either. Every science textbook recognizes that human embryos are not merely an extension of the woman, nor a collection of cells, but rather independent human beings. If they are not human, what else would they be? Now, there's a lot of places we could route trail from here. But what we want to do as kingdom citizens is we want to uncouple this issue of abortion from our favorite political party. And hopefully to a degree, we've just done that as we've surveyed scripture. And we've been reminded that babies in the womb are, in fact, Babies. And in our current science is king culture, it's honestly unbelievable to me that this is even a debate. But it is. So the next thing we have to do as Christians is we have to recognize both the baby in the womb and the mother carrying the baby are not issues to be legislated to, but people to love. Like so many terms, the word pro-life has unfortunately become politicized, but as believers in Christ, the restorative justice of God calls us to recognize the sanctity of all life, both mother and child. So with this in mind, I actually prefer the term whole life as opposed to just pro-life because we care about equally about the mother and the baby. The fact that so many women feel that abortion is their only option shouldn't cause us to demonize them, but it should cause us, it should compel us to find out why. Here's two interesting statistics of a, of a number of statistics about abortion. The most likely women to get an abortion are below the poverty level. Why? Why? The most likely women to get an abortion are women of color, almost three to one over white women. Why? According to a study published in the American Journal of Public Health, by age 45, almost one quarter of the women in the United States would have had an abortion. So that means in this room, there's a very likely chance. That is true. One of us, one of you have had an abortion or been a part of it in some way. So here's the thing. The church has never relied on the laws of a secular kingdom to dictate a godly kingdom response. And I'm afraid in most cases, this has been the fallback position of the church. And so it often only seems like we care about abortion during election times once every four years. And if that's our approach as Christians, to simply make it an issue of a president or a Supreme Court justice, then we are being hypocritical. The sanctity of life is an undeniable Christian value. So how do we address the issue of protecting the unborn from this Titus 3.8, doing good kind of way? I think first as Christians, we need to ask more and better questions. We need to get to the root issues that would cause a mother to feel like the only choice she has is to end her baby's life. Because she is not an issue to be legislated toward, but she is a person to be loved. And we need to lead with compassion toward mothers in crisis, and we need to lead with conviction in trying to protect the unborn. And we need to put our money where our every four-year vote is, literally. And I think, yes, we should also support legislation that protects unborn children. But Christian values, they are best displayed when the church is active at the ground level, not at the political level. And I would encourage you, if you're somebody who's passionate about this, I think we all should be, to engage with some of those that are trying to minister to the at-risk mothers and to those children that are at risk. There's an organization we'll share more info about in the next couple weeks called CareNet here in the Puget Sound. And they offer many of the same services that Planned Parenthood offers without abortion. And they try to connect mothers at a last resort to adoption resources to wrap around them and support them. I think Care is a phenomenal ministry to support that loves both the at-risk mother and the unborn child. Here in our church, Robin Wiebe, her and her family are gone uh, this Sunday, celebrating the 100th birthday uh, of a relative. Um, But Robin Wiebe, I'd encourage you to connect with her. She works for an organization called Step by Step that wraps around mothers that are at risk, that need resources, they need food, they need stable housing, whatever it would be. And then a Vision House as well here in Renton. So there are ways to put our money, literally write a check to these organizations, support them, volunteer. There are ways to do that. And then Jessica and I, we also have chosen to adopt and to be engaged with the foster care system, which is a result of some of these mothers that are in need feel like they have no other options. So there's ways as a church to engage with these issues. And this is restorative justice that we talked about last night that reflects the kingdom heart of God. And lastly, let me say on this issue, if you are a woman here in our building or is listening online that has had an abortion or you're a man that has played a part in influencing one, you need to know that you are not outside the bounds of forgiveness and restoration of Jesus. His forgiveness is for you. The restoration of your heart is possible. Colossians 1.14 says that we have in Jesus, we have redemption and forgiveness. And I hope that you would know that you are loved and that you can be forgiven and received and that we love you as well as a church. The second issue of justice that is front and center in our society right now is the issue of racism. Racism has long been a stain on America, and from the way Native Americans were viewed and treated to chattel slavery to the Three Fifth Compromise to the Jim Crow South, racism is a bedrock sin of our country. And while things have changed, there is still an issue of racism in our culture today. I had a random conversation. Uh, with a neighbor of mine yesterday we one of those like you both meet in the cul-de-sac and start chatting and we were talking about housing prices and all the craziness of that real estate in the Seattle area and one thing led to another she said you know I used to live in Capitol Hill I grew up in Capitol Hill I lived in a 700 square foot house there and she says right next door to me uh, was a, a Japanese family and she said I, Before I was born, this Japanese family was shipped off to an internment camp down in California during World War II. Some of you, most of you know about this, some of you don't know, but when World War II hit, all the Japanese in America were rounded up and put into camps simply for the fact they were Japanese. And she said, and this family was taken out of their home that they owned, and nobody knew when they would be back. She said, so what my family did is my parents, put my grandparents in their house, and we ran their house as a boarding house for several years. And when our neighbors were finally released from that camp and came back to Seattle, we gave them the house back. Not only that, but we gave them all the money that we had made by renting it out as a boarding house for those few years. I thought, what a beautiful picture, what we were talking about last week, of restorative justice. But many of you know that wasn't the case for so many in our culture. They never got their house back. They never got their businesses back. And it literally changed the destiny of generations of Japanese Americans in our culture. So this is the thing with racism. First of all, it's a sin. And what we should never do with any sin is say, it's not as bad as it once was. It's still a sin. That's like saying, well, you know, our food used to have tons of maggots in it. Now it only has a few. When we say that about sin in our culture, we're doing something that God never does with sin, makes room for it. And so in our current day, what we've seen is that while people are no longer segregated by the law, the sin of racism is still very much alive. Oppression, marginalization, or simply just treating people differently based on skin color, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status is a sin and one that the Bible addresses clearly. James chapter 2 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors what is James saying here he's saying all the maggots need to be taken out of the food like there is no room for this and partiality is the biblical term the biblical equivalent of racism or prejudice preferential treatment favoritism whatever your translation says Now, just like abortion, the term racism isn't found in the Bible, but the same root sin of viewing each other in this way is addressed, and we see this come up again and again. In fact, we see it in the early church. In Acts chapter 6, there was a food distribution that happens weekly for the widows in the church. And a couple members come to, to Peter, who's leading the church, and they say, hey, we've noticed something. All the Hebrew widows are getting food, But all the Greek widows are getting nothing. Peter's Hebrew. What's he doing? What are some of the leaders doing? Man, they're they're showing partiality towards a different ethnic group within the church. This is addressed. And what ends up happening is a, a, a type of restorative justice right there in the church. Peter goes, oh my goodness, We need to fix this. And so they appoint men to oversee the food distribution for everybody. But you know who they appoint? They appoint Greek men to oversee the food both for the Hebrews and the Greeks. So there's a sense of representation that's important there as they make this wrong right. So these issues of partiality and prejudice were evident in the culture back then and in this new community of people that were being formed by the Holy Spirit They were starting to wake up to this particular sin in their culture and see how it had caused social injustice. And so what was happening was the ways of Jesus were compelling them to live differently than the ways of the culture. To seek peace, friendship, and ultimately become family. Ephesians 2, this would be addressed to this specific church as well, says, For he himself is our peace, to you who were far away, and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. There's some first century references in that passage, but during Jesus' time, Jews and non Jews were not allowed to worship together. They were not allowed to go beyond a part of the temple called the court of the Gentiles at risk of their own life. In fact, several years ago, archaeologists found an inscription in the wall of this temple court. And it read, Whoever is captured past this point will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. That's how separated things were. This was a wall, a dividing barrier set up to keep one group of people from enjoying the same privilege as another. It was this cultural, religious, and ethnic wall that Jesus came to remove. And as Christians, he is calling us today to live this, your kingdom come, your will be done on, in Renton as it is in heaven, in the Puget Sound as it is in heaven, in America as it is in heaven. And at times the church has been complicit in reinforcing that wall. And at times it has been instrumental in tearing it down. In the 1800s, a man named William Wilberforce became a believer in Christ and he was a politician at that time. And he thought, oh, now that I'm a Christian and I'm seeing things differently, that's what being, repenting means, I think maybe I should pursue being a pastor. That must be the next step, right? Of Being a really good Christian. And as he was considering that, he thought, no, I think I'm called to stay and be a politician. In fact, There is an injustice happening in society. Men and women are being stolen from their home country and sold as slaves in my country, in England. And so William Wilberforce decided that out of the outflow of his Christian faith, he was going to stand against chattel slavery. And 30 years before the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln made in our country, slavery was abolished in England largely because one Christian man stood before all the other leaders in his country and appealed to a godly kingdom ways. So just like with abortion, we know that secular legislation ultimately can change rules and laws, but it can't change people's hearts. And some of the roots of systemic racism are still holding fast in our culture today. And I've heard some of the stories of racism from people in our church. Three years ago, I was standing right on the south side of our building talking to a member of our church who said while he was out in front of our building, somebody drove up in a truck and yelled at him to go back to his country. Now, this particular member's got Mexican roots, but he he looked at me and he said, bro, I grew up in the Bay Area. They don't know me. They just looked at my skin and made an assumption that I wasn't from here. I've talked to members of our church. One friend of mine in particular has told me about everyday activities he's done and had the police called on him for. Walking in a neighborhood, taking pictures at a park, pushing his son in a stroller in downtown Seattle. Three cases, he told me. He said, I wonder why the police were called on me for doing those things. This man's a black man. And I told him, I said, you know what? I've done all three of those things. Never had the police call on me. Why would that be? Racism has never left our country. It's just changed shapes and forms. And so as we consider this as Christians, how are we to engage with this issue from a kingdom perspective? Let me leave us with just a few thoughts. First, racial prejudice is a sin, and it needs to be dealt with. And each of us needs to search our own hearts and ask God to reveal areas of our thinking that might give room to this type of thoughts. And then we need to ask God for forgiveness and transformation, whether it's small things or we've stereotyped people from a different culture or race or bigger issues of prejudice, we need to ask God to forgive us and to change our hearts. We need to know that Jesus broke down the spiritual barrier, but he's commanding his church to break down the physical ones. And we are to pray that God's kingdom would be seen on earth as it is in heaven. And I love Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It gives us this picture. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is a picture of worship in heaven. And this is one of the things I love about our city and about our church with so many different nations represented. When we gather together, we get a little taste of Revelation 7, 9. After the issues in the church in Acts chapter 6 with the distribution of food, you fast forward to Acts chapter 15, and you see a beautiful multi-ethnic church. The church leaders that are listed there, we, we miss it in our, in our cursory reading, but they represent North Africa and eastern, the eastern side of the Middle East. and It's a diverse church with diverse leadership. What a beautiful picture that is of the early church, and what a beautiful picture God gives us of what heaven will be like someday. And so I think when a church joins together and is truly multi-ethnic and brings their cultural uniqueness together, we demonstrate to a divided world what Jesus does. It's a beautiful thing. And lastly, let me encourage us all in this time to be ambassadors of peace. There's so much rhetoric going on. There's so much politicization of, of racial issues, both in the media and social media and some of your own some of our own social media feeds, right? We're tempted to, to wade in with the currents of the culture and interact the same way that everybody else is, but God calls us as Christians to be peacemakers. As far as it depends on us, Romans says, we should be at peace with all people. And the best way to pursue peace is by asking forgiveness for those that we've had prejudice toward and to pursuing Friendship. This is a picture of reconciliation. When Jesus forgives us for our sins and brings us close and into relationship with God, he brings us in as friends. And when you're friends with someone, you can ask stupid questions <laughs> and extend grace. And while we understand that we can't all relate with each other in every aspect of our life, we can seek to understand the diversity, the beautiful diversity in our church. The beautiful backgrounds that we each represent. And let me throw this out, especially for my, my white friends. Don't tell someone you're colorblind. I, I know the intention is good to say, I, 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 I'm not being racist or prejudiced towards you. But how that's often received is you don't see me for my uniqueness, for who I really am. So let's not let's do away with the language of being colorblind and instead say, man. Tell me more about your upbringing. Tell me more about your experiences. Man, you're, from, you're from Kenya. Uh, what's your favorite food in Kenya? Man, you, you're, you're, from, you're from China. Man, tell me about what that was like when you grew up. Let's acknowledge who God has made us uniquely to be while fighting against the prejudices that would seek to divide us. So share a meal, share a culture, share stories. Seek friendship with each other. And while we do that, these dividing walls of hostility come down and reconciliation is possible. The truth is the heart of the gospel is redemption and reconciliation. And God came down in humanity to wage war against sin and through Jesus, sin was defeated. And while we put our faith in him, we receive the forgiveness, he redeems us. He makes us new and we can walk out in this new community, this new way of life that frees us from our past mistakes and it frees us from our prejudices. And in that redemption, we are now reconciled to God. And his restorative justice means that we aren't an enemy any longer, but we are a friend, a son and a daughter, whether we have harbored prejudice towards another or whether we have killed an unborn child in the womb. That reconciliation and redemption is always possible. And then that reconciliation and redemption, it does something in us. It causes us to look outward, to see the injustice and the brokenness of humanity and to feed them and to fight for their freedom and to stand with them in their pain and to take care of their wounds and to tell them about Jesus who died for them so they can be reconciled and redeemed. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of an isolated, fearful, politicized, or lazy American church that is just content to wait things out. No, I want to be a part of a a church that follows Jesus into culture armed with radical love and with deep conviction and with life-changing mercy. Is that what you want to be a part of? That's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a, a light to this city to the neighborhoods that we live in, engaging with injustice from a distinctly kingdom perspective, spurring each other on towards love and good deeds and doing it all under the grace of God because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to say stupid things, but God still loves us. We're still part of this family. Amen. we am going to have Aaron and Tiffany come up and we're going to sing a song that's really just a song of reflection. As I know, many competing things may be stirring in your heart right now. Some of you are having to deal with politics even as, even to receive this word this morning. Some of you are having to do with guilt. Some of you are, maybe your eyes are being opened a little bit. Wherever you are in that spectrum, as we sing this last song, it was my hope that the Holy Spirit would minister to you. And then I'm going to lead us in a time of corporate prayer at the end of this song. We can just lift up the things that are stirring in our hearts uniquely as a church and ask God to, to mobilize us for his mission. Let me pray for us as we sing this last song. Lord, would you prepare our hearts to receive? I pray that we already have received. And Lord, in just a few minutes, as we pray together, may we pray your prayers for our nation, your prayers for our culture, for the lost and the hurting, Lord God, for the marginalized mother who's not sure what to do because with this baby, for the person that has been trained to be racist, and for those that have been oppressed, and marginalized, Lord, all in between, Lord. May you show us how to pray, how to engage with your heart of mercy and of peace. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.